Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gave an impassioned plea to Canada's parliament this week. Zelensky is seeking support from NATO leaders to create and enforce a no-fly zone over his country, which raises the prospect of wider conflict with Russia. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. National Post political reporter Ryan Tumulty joins me to discuss Zelensky's speech, the mood in the House of Commons, and what Canada is willing to do short of that no-fly zone. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Ryan, the much-anticipated speech by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to Canada's parliament happened on Tuesday. I do want to set the scene a little bit for people in a moment, what it was like in the House of Commons, but I am curious how this speech came about. Was this something that the Canadian government asked of President Zelensky, or was that a request that the Ukrainian president made of Canada? How did the speech get organized or come to fruition? The Ukrainian government and the Canadian government have sort of been in touch throughout this crisis at all levels, including several direct phone calls between President Zelensky and Prime Minister Trudeau, one of which happened last week, at the end of which the Prime Minister invited the President to address Parliament, and he took him up on it right away. Mm-hmm. President Zelensky has addressed the UK Parliament. He did that last week. Just the morning we were recording this, he is speaking to the US Congress. I think, you know, President Zelensky really wants to keep his country in the forefront of people's mind. With so much going on in the world, there's always, of course, the chance that this crisis might slip people's mind or or fade into the background. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the idea of these addresses that he is making around the world is to make sure that doesn't happen. You were in the House of Commons. This is the first time, I believe, since Parliament resumed that they had public galleries open. Can you kind of set the stage for us? Was it a packed house? Were all MPs present or as many as possible present? And what was the mood like in the House of Commons on Tuesday? There have been foreign leaders who've spoken to Parliament before, but in the last two years, Parliament has been a a pretty quiet place. A lot of MPs participate virtually. There's less of that now, but, you know, most days there isn't a full house. And yeah, the public galleries have been closed completely throughout the pandemic. On Tuesday, they were full. Lots of members of the Ukrainian-Canadian community, some members of the Canadian military, senators were invited, so there were many senators there as well. You know, a really full house, lots of people with with yellow and blue ribbons, the Ukrainian flag colors, lots of people with blazers and ties and scarves and other attire in that really bold blue and yellow, you know, as a sign of support for Ukraine. Now, getting to the text of the speech and the plea that Zelensky was making of Canada's parliamentarians, what was the general thrust of what he had to say? You know, he's a former actor. That's how he came to fame in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And he really painted this sort of vivid picture of what life in Ukraine is like right now by relating it to Canada. He was mentioning, you know, how would MPs feel if it was the Ottawa airport under assault, if it was Vancouver that had been cut off from the rest of Canada and was under siege by an invading army. He really tried to paint that picture there. And then, of course, he had a big ask. He asked, Canada to support and to push for a no-fly zone over his country. He's made that same ask elsewhere. And, you know, he said that is the way, the only way he can see to stop the bombs and the missiles from falling on his country. 
How long was his address to Parliament? And what was the general response in the room to what he had to say? How was he received by the House of Commons? Yeah, it wasn't a long speech. I would say it was about 15 minutes, maybe a little more. And he got multiple standing ovations in the room. Lots of support for him. The prime minister spoke before President Zelensky spoke and, and talked about the degree to which he is being a champion for democracy, not just in Ukraine, but around the world. And the support and respect that they have for him, all the opposition leaders said the same thing. And, you know, the room was just sort of in awe of this leader in wartime, you know, under siege. I can't tell you exactly where he was speaking from, but it had the feel of a, a basement bunker. He just had a, a plain white wall behind him, and he was in green, you know, military clothing, not in a suit and tie. It was definitely, you know, a world leader speaking to Canada's parliament while under siege. Out of this, there has been a lot of talk about whether NATO would set up and enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine. I imagine that's the same pitch that Zelensky was making to U.S. Congress this morning and to other world leaders. And that seems to be a line that the West isn't keen to cross. How has the prime minister addressed this question? You know, he called Zelensky a champion of democracy, not just for Ukraine, but for the world. Our opposition leaders all seem to be in support of Zelensky in Ukraine but when it comes to a no-fly zone, what is the reason that we're given for why Canada can't take part in that? Or are we even given a straight answer by the prime minister on this issue? We actually are. He's been fairly straightforward about this, that no, that's not a move we can make. He, he said it before the speech, and his foreign affairs minister, Melanie Trulli, said roughly the same thing after the speech. You know, he said a no-fly zone risks putting NATO troops and Russian troops into direct combat. I've talked to a few experts about this, and the consensus is the same, is that the problem with a no-fly zone is you have to enforce it. You can't just proclaim it, which means at a certain point in time, a NATO jet has to fire on a Russian jet. And, you know, we spent 50 years in the Cold War trying to avoid exactly that outcome because it leads to all sorts of terrible places in terms of escalation. Mm -hmm. So as much as there was a lot of support for him in the room, you know, there was very little support for the idea of a no-fly zone. The Conservatives, interestingly, Candace Bergen raised the idea of some sort of no-fly zone over humanitarian corridors in Ukraine to allow people who want to flee that country to do so. It's really unclear how that would work, because I, I think from the Russian perspective, a no-fly zone is a no-fly zone is a no-fly zone. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that they would accept that challenge. We'll be right back. You mentioned Candace Bergen. She also had discussed the notion that Russian President Vladimir Putin should be brought to justice at the International Criminal Court. Does Canada have any ability to make that happen or to expedite that process? Yeah, we've encouraged the International Criminal Court as a country, along with many of our allies, have encouraged the International Criminal Court to investigate the possibility of Russian war crimes as quickly as possible to step up the efforts to investigate potential war crimes. That is work that is ongoing. In terms of actually getting Vladimir Putin to The Hague, um, you know, I think there's roughly a thousand steps between 
calling for it and that happening. And I, I think a lot of them would be a big challenge. Most of all, you know, even if you were to find that that had happened, I don't know how you get them to the Netherlands willingly. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh was calling on more sanctions to be put in place. Canada did, in fact, add more sanctions to the list of sanctions they've already imposed on Russia. So what more can Canada do to impose economic punishment on the Russian regime? The government has talked repeatedly. So, you know, yesterday we added more names to the the Russian sanction list. And I think that kind of incremental effort will continue. New people who we believe profit off of the Putin presidency or are around it do so. That will continue. In terms of other things that might be on the table, we've asked Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland about that. And she says they are always looking for sort of creative options. And I have to say, you know, at the start of this crisis, there were things that were considered, you know, too far that the West probably wouldn't do, like cutting off Russian banks from SWIFT, the international banking communication system. Those things happened fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And then new things we hadn't talked about before, like cutting off the Russian central bank from the rest of the world, also happened. And those weren't even on the table before the crisis started. So I think there are probably other things that might happen. I don't think the government's going to be upfront about what those might be, because, of course, if you tell Russia before you do it, Russia can try to plan around it. But the sanctions themselves are interesting because they are starting to target more and more people. You know, one of the latest rounds of sanctions last week, it hit government ministers and it hit oligarchs, but it also hit people who are anchors or who run news programs on Kremlin state-funded propaganda. Hmm. The editor-in-chief of Russia Today, which is this international English-language Russian news service, which is really just a propaganda outlet for the Kremlin, their editor-in-chief was included in the Canadian sanctions recently. Speaking of, of the sanctions, that Russia retaliated with its own set of supposed punishments for Canadian politicians. They, you know, banned a host of Canadian politicians, including the prime minister and senior cabinet ministers, opposition MPs from entering Russian territory. What did the government make of that? Did they just kind of shrug it off? You know, some punishment here. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of concern about that. It was 313 new people who were added to the, they call it the, the blacklist. It's people who cannot travel to Russia. It's basically every MP now. There are a few people who might have been left off the list, but we think that's probably an oversight more than anything else. And certainly there were people who were sanctioned previously when Russia invaded Crimea and Canada pushed to kick Russia out of the G8, as it was then. So no one was too concerned about that. Not a lot of people are interested in traveling to Russia. You know, a lot of the MPs I've seen talk about it see it as a badge of honor that they were so sanctioned. Obviously, we are not going to follow through on the request for a no-fly zone. Was there anything else that Zelensky asked for in his speech to Parliament or anything else Canada is doing to help the Ukrainian effort against the Russian invasion? You know, are we promising more weapons than we've already promised? Are we promising more economic support than we've already promised? Or is Zelensky asking for that? His focus was definitely on the no-fly zone. That was the central request. There wasn't any specific demand. I know that there are ongoing conversations with people in the Ukrainian government about other potential people who could be targeted by sanctions and moves like that. But there wasn't anything sort of specific beyond that. But I suspect that, you know, the Canadian government is going to keep coming up with new ways to try to halt this war 
the prime minister, you know, as well as everyone else have said that this war cannot set a bad precedent. It cannot set the precedent that a militarily powerful country can just walk over international borders. That is something that very much the world is trying to avoid because that creates all kinds of new problems. So what is next for Canada in this conflict? Obviously, the war is ongoing. The Ukrainian forces are trying to stem the tide, trying to hold off the Russian offensive. But here in Canada, what is our role? I heard someone with the government say something along the lines of, you know, there's not a lot we can do. We're a middle power. We're not a superpower. We have the ability to convene. Is that the next step? Does Canada try and facilitate peace talks? Does Canada try to facilitate other aid for Ukraine from other countries? What do we do next here? You know, I, I can't give you specifics because uh, I don't think we'll know what their exact next move is until they make it. Yeah. But we've seen the prime minister's call sheet has been very busy over, I would say, over the last two weeks talking to a lot of world leaders. I'm sure trying to get more people to sign on to some of the sanctions that Canada has done. Mm-hmm. There is a NATO summit next week, which we expect the prime minister will attend. And I'm sure there will be more discussion of what to do there. It's about this continued pressure, you know, to go back to where we started. President Zelensky is talking to legislatures in important capitals to try to keep the pressure and the attention up. And I suspect that will continue. And I suspect Canada will keep finding new ways, not necessarily a brand new strategy, but trying to get more countries to join the sanctions, trying to find new people to sanction, trying to find new weapons that the Ukrainians might need. I think really everything short of that no-fly zone is on the table, Mm -hmm. and we're going to keep doing those things. Well, I know it's a story that the world is following very closely, and we'll keep doing the same. Ryan, thanks for your time. No problem. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest Ryan Tumulty. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.